Hear now the word of the God. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is Havel. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why are the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who seek the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, join me in prayer once more as we look at God's word. Our gracious God, there have been thousands upon thousands upon thousands of sermons preached already this Lord's Day around the world. And this is just one. So in a sense, Lord, um, make us small today. Because we are. We're simply joining in with the rest of your people around the globe to praise our great and high King, Jesus Christ. But in another sense, Lord, and we have confidence that you are, you are with us uniquely as your word is proclaimed and your sacraments are administered. Oh God, what a joy it is once again to turn to your word and to be helped, to be comforted, to be challenged, to have your purposes work in our lives, God. And we pray that Christ would be exalted through the word today. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the topic of today's message is let death and wisdom teach you. Let death and wisdom teach you. That's the main point I want to communicate today. If you don't get that, then perhaps I've failed. Let death and wisdom teach you. If you're new today, no, we are not a morbid people. We're a joyful people here. But it is a great truth we need to learn today. Ecclesiastes has taught us many truths. I hope that you have enjoyed this study. I know I have. One of the truths has taught us is that uh, life is out of your control. Life is out of your control. So one of the questions you have to ask yourself as we've been going through Ecclesiastes is how should we live knowing that life is out of your control? Do we just throw our hands in the air and live however we want? Or are there some teachers we ought to listen to? Some people we ought to give our ear towards? Well, 
answer to that is yes. I'm going to argue today that it's death and wisdom that you must listen to. But there are some teachers that we listen to today. Unfortunately, the first is escapism. Escapism. Uh, David Gibson writes in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, he says, there are two options at least that we must hear in this world today or that we do hear. When you realize that you cannot explain, I'm quoting Gibson here, when you realize that you cannot explain everything, that the people you love will become ill and die, and you don't know why God could allow this to happen, or you have to face the fact that there is a throbbing hurt at the core of your soul that won't go away, one option is to try to flee reality and numb the pain to avoid the problems. Escapism. Party as hard as you can, drink yourselves into oblivion, live in the past or the land of make-believe instead of the present. That is escapism, and many of us, many in this world, have chosen that route only to find satisfaction for the hour. But that's about it. There is the other teacher we often listen to today, that is the option of intellectualism. Again, David Gibson, Ecclesiastes, the preacher, says, So you think you're smart? You think you've got all you think you've got your life in order? Got it nailed down? You think you understand how the world works? If death and destruction come knocking on your door on a Tuesday morning completely out of the blue, if the doctor tells you that your own end is near or the phone rings with heartbreaking news, then at that moment, you will realize the control you thought you had over life was just self-deception. Thinking you know enough to control your life is just an illusion, Gibson says. But you know what's not an illusion? The tears on your pillow at night. When you try to get a fully satisfying handle on how things work in this life, you discover that intelligence seems to live on the other side of the world. We chase it, but we can't have the full measure of it. Intellectualism, uh, escapism, these are options we turn to, teachers we listen to in this life, and they let us down. Well, what are some teachers we must heed? Well, uh, number one, uh, let death teach you. Uh, let death teach you. Verse one, uh, a good name is better than precious ointment. In the day of death, than the day of birth. The idea here, beloved, is a good character, uh, your reputation, what you are on the inside, is better than perfume. It's better than externals. A good character, someone with a good soul, a good-natured person, uh, the preacher is saying here, in other words, don't be the kind of person who makes others wince. If your name is brought up in a conversation casually, is it the moral equivalent of nails running down a chalkboard? That's the bad name. 
You want to have a good name. When people think of you, what do they do? Do they smile? Do they wince? Do they frown? Have a good character, he says. And he goes on and he says, uh, what, will be the, what will be the context or the setting in which your character is assessed? It's assessed now, but what, what ultimately is or where is your good name assessed? Well, the day of your death. He says in verse 2, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Better to attend a funeral than a party, is what he's saying. Better to go to the morgue than a maternity ward. Why is that the case? Why is it better to go to a funeral than a party? I don't think many of us would choose that. Is it because death is better than life? I don't think so. I think the argument here by the preacher is a funeral is better than a party because a coffin teaches you about life more than the crib. A coffin is a better teacher than the crib. You know, when you were born, Lennon was just born, there's virtually nothing anyone can say about you. You notice that? Other than maybe who you resemble. And that gets old after the last four months. There's virtually nothing anyone can say about you when you're born. Other than what you look like. But fast forward to the day of your death. And there's a whole lot people can say about you. And you know what? It's never what you look like. The house of mourning has a way of sharpening our focus on life. The preacher says, attend a funeral and you'll understand life and why it's significant and what in life you should value. There's two types of people at a funeral. At least I've observed. Maybe there's more, but there's the fool. He sits there to the sermon. He sits there through all the uh, singing and eulogies, and he says, when can I get out of here? When can I get out into the sunshine of entertainment and amusement, right? I'm tired of listening to death. I'm tired of being in this room thinking about dying When can I leave this place? That's the fool. The wise person, he sits at a funeral and he says to himself, how long can I stay? How long can I sit here? Because one day, death is around the corner and one day, I'm going to be in that box. This was the passage I preached at Karen's memorial. So bear with me. I still, do you, do you know I still have Karen's ashes? 
They're on my bookshelf in my office, downstairs in my house. It's funny, but that's where all of us are going to go. You're going to be on someone's bookcase one day or in the ground. It's better. The wise person sits at a funeral and says, how long can I stay? Because I'm going to be in that box. And the question the preacher is asking today is what kind of person do you want to be while you still have life? Right? What kind of person do you want to be while you still have life? Do you want to be the kind of person who gave themselves to money? Who gave themselves to their work at all costs? Do you want to be known as a cantankerous, unhappy individual? I don't. What kind of person do you want to be while you still have breath in your lungs? Do you know what kind of person I want to be? What's the question to the Westminster Shorter Catechism? Someone call it out. That's the answer. What's the question? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what I want to be in this life. All my days. The chief end of Ryan, the chief end of all of you is to glorify him and enjoy God forever. Attend a funeral and get the meaning of life in your bones before it's too late. You're going to the box one day, and you don't know when. Be the kind of person that is sold out for the glory of God and the enjoyment of him. What else are you going to do? This life is a mist. Jerry Sitzer wrote a book called The Grace Disguised. I actually had the privilege of hearing him speak one night at a uh, church retreat. I still remember that, that meeting. Well, on the fall of one night in 1991 in rural Idaho, Jerry Sitzer was driving with his wife, his four children, and his mother when his car was struck by a drunk driver. And in a moment, in an absolute moment, he lost his wife, his mother, and his four-year-old daughter. In the aftermath, Sitzer wrote a beautiful and profound moving book on loss and sorrow called A Grace Disguised. His reflections portray an unspeakable agony from the inside while powerfully describing how he and his surviving children slowly began to piece their lives back together again. Eight years later, after A Grace Disguise was first published, Sitzer had the opportunity to comment on how far he and his children had come in the time since the accident. In the, pref in the preface to the second edition of his book, he, re he reveals that his, quote, rawness and utter bewilderment have given him or given way to contentment and deep gratitude. <laughs> Unbelievable. 
his story has turned out to be, quote, redemptive, not only for me and my children, but for many other people as well, end quote. And then he says these words, quote, as strange as it might sound, I wish that every man could experience what I have. Yeah. I wish that every man could experience what I have. What does he know? That Sitzer was ever able to describe his trauma as a grace disguised is absolutely remarkable. But that he is now standing in a place where he has received the kind of gifts from it that he wishes others could surely share is a profound Surprise. You're going to need to read his book and find out what those gifts are that he learned through suffering. So what about you, beloved? Will you let death teach you the meaning of life? Will you let it reshape your goals, your attitudes, the things you long for, the things you work so hard for, the things you pray for and hope for most, is death going to teach you today? Because here's what you need to understand about death, and I'll move on after this. If death is not your Lord, and Christ is, death doesn't own you. And if death doesn't own you, you don't need to fear it. You just need to listen to it and learn its lessons. What does R.C. Sproul say? I'm not afraid of death. I'm afraid of dying. And he's right. Listen to death teach you, beloved, about the meaning of life. Sharpen your focus. Attend a funeral now and then. And get the meaning of life. Well, secondly, um, let wisdom teach you as well. Uh, let wisdom teach you. Verse 5. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Heading here would be something along the lines of receive correction. How should you live this life under wisdom's banner? Well, you should receive correction. Uh, Psalm 141 verse 5. Turn there if you would. Psalm 141, 5. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. <laughs> Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. That's good in this context. Let my head not refuse it. Let a righteous man strike me. Let a righteous man rebuke me. It's a kindness, he says. And let him approve me. Let him rebuke me and challenge me and correct me. It's, it's a gift of God. It's oil for my head. Correction, rebuke, admonishment. These are gifts from God. They, they, they tease out the pride that, that is hidden so deep within that's the message here. Receive correction. 
This assumes, of course, that you believe you need correction, which is a big hindrance probably for most of us. Ecclesiastes 7 assumes that you need correction. John Wesley once wrote in his journal, um, no one had corrected him all day, rebuked him all day. So Wesley wrote in his journal that uh, he, he, he wasn't sure if he was right with God. No one's corrected me, so I wonder if, I, if there's something going on in my life with you, Lord. Charles Spurgeon, he says, quote, Brother, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. If he charges you falsely on some point, be content, for if he knew you better, he might change his accusation and correct you even worse. If you have your moral portrait painted, this is still Spurgeon, and it's ugly, be satisfied, for it only needs a few blacker touches, and then it would be nearer to the truth. Receive correction, beloved. Be teachable. Assume the worst of yourself, please, please, please. Assume the worst of yourself and the best of others. You have a long way to go, even in the areas you think you are pretty good at. You have a long way to go. Correction is God's grace to get you where you need to be. Listen to wisdom. Uh, Secondly, money corrupts even the wise. Verse 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Money corrupts even the wise. Oppression drives even the wise to madness, and a bribe corrupts the the heart. When dollar signs flash, even the wise can be corrupted. It, it, It can touch us all. David Gibson, again, wisdom doesn't come in stainless steel. It can rust. Yes, it can. Everyone has their price, so the saying goes. But the preacher says to you this morning, beloved, prove that saying wrong. Don't be the kind of person that can be bought. Don't be the kind of person that can be bought. After all, what did 30 pieces of silver get Judas? It got him regret, and it got him a rope. Money can corrupt even the wise. Guard your heart. Verse 8, patience, not pride. Wisdom's calling out to you, patience, not pride. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. It's better to finish a project than simply to start it. That's true for Legos and that's true for your sanctification. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. To see something through the end is better than to be the kind of person who starts and never finishes. Verse 9, get a long fuse. Get a long fuse. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the heart of fools. In light of the fact that you're going to die someday soon, beloved, is it really worth being the kind of person who loses their temper? You see, when death is at your mind's eye, when, when you think death is around the corner, 
is it really worth getting upset and mad about what this person did, what my kids did here? Get a long fuse, the preacher says. Be slow to anger. Fools have short fuses. So get a long one, the preacher says. Don't spend your vaporous life getting mad at people. Uh, Verse 10. Nostalgia. Here's one I have wrestled with over the years. Verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? I find myself saying that all the time. It is not from wisdom that you ask this. Nostalgia. Things aren't the way they used to be, God. Yes, this isn't your grandparents' America again. Why aren't things like the way they used to be? Why is the world getting so bad? I'm glad I didn't have to bring up my children in these days. And the preacher says, you know, it's not wisdom that you say those things. The grass isn't always greener on the other side. Maybe the past was better than the present. Maybe. But when you start asking why, what you are doing is denying the reality of God's presence today. Is God no longer in control? Has God changed? No. So we may not ask why the former days are better than these, even though they may have been. God is still at work. He hasn't changed. What he is doing in you and his purposes in you are still the same in as much as they were in the former days. So don't ask why were the former days better than these. God hasn't changed. He's still working and he's still moving in your life and in this world. To ask why is to forget about God and what he's doing. Uh, C.S. Lewis helped me with nostalgia. He says, nostalgia is something that affects us all. Not just older people looking back wistfully at their youth. Perhaps we get nostalgic about buildings or places. Mostly, most likely we experience nostalgia for people or an intensity of emotion we felt at a particular time. Have you ever stopped to think about the feeling of nostalgia and what it actually is? C.S. Lewis defines it as nostalgia is the the special emotion of uh, longing and it is always bittersweet. Here's what Lewis says. You may not like this. Only children or the emotionally immature think that what they are longing for is actually what they are longing for. The child thinks his memory of that beautiful hillside gives him a lovely feeling so that if he could go back to that hillside, he would have the lovely feeling all over again for as long as he stayed at that hillside. 
No, says Lewis and Ecclesiastes, that's not wise. When you mature, Lewis says, you realize that nostalgia plays a kind of trick on you. I read that line and I thought, yeah, it kind of does. When you grow up, you realize that if you, could, that if you could go back to the hillside, it may be nice, it's probably going to be lovely, but it would also be ordinary in some ways. And simply going back to it would not generate that intensity of feeling. At this point, I'm reading, this is by, in uh, The Weight of Glory, by the way. He says this, The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. For it was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a far country we have not yet visited. That's so good. When you experience nostalgia, I'm almost done. Your heart is longing for a more beautiful person than you have ever met or a more beautiful place than you have ever known. You think you're longing for the past, but the past was never as good as your mind is telling you it was. And I'm thinking, yes. There was some pain in the past. <laughs> Why did I not think there wasn't? Lewis says, God is giving you in that moment one of the most profound glimpses of the intensity of perfection and beauty that you have actually yet to see. Really almost done. What is in fact pulling on your heartstrings is the future. Whoa. That's how you get, like when you read Lewis sometimes, you're like, whoa. What is in fact pulling on your heartstrings is not the past. But the future, Lewis says, it's heaven. It's your sense of home and belonging that has just cracked the surface of your life. Nostalgia for just a moment. And then it's gone. In other words, the fool is always wanting to return to that faint memory of something because they think in the past that's what they had and it was extraordinary bliss with no problems and Lewis is saying no you're actually forgetting the past really but that longing that you want that nostalgic feeling that lovely feeling you have in your soul it's not really about the feeling you had about the past 
it's really your longing for a home, for heaven, for the future. The wise, the wise don't look back on the past and say, oh, how wonderful it was. The, the wise look forward to glory. They look up and they say, when can I go home? When can I go home? Until that day, beloved, let death be your teacher and let wisdom carry you all your day, always longing for that person, the Lord Jesus Christ, and for your eternal home. Oh, let's pray together. Our great God, we pray that we ought to be a people sold out for the glory of God and to enjoy him forever. Oh, this life is so short. What else ought we to do? Help us, we pray. Help us, we pray, to be wise in this life, knowing that wisdom itself has limitations. And let death speak to us always. Sharpen our focus in Christ's name. Amen.